Hi everyone, welcome to OCBC Insights. My name is Bunny, and today joining us on Zoom are two of our economists, Weilian Riwanto and Tommy Sie, who are here to share with us their latest insights on what's brewing in the two biggest economies, the US and China. So recent events such as the closures of each other's consulates in Houston and Chengdu last week have raised tensions. We also saw gold skyrocketing to an all-time high amid the political hailstorm just yesterday. So let's find out from our experts what's the deal with each of these superpowers. Weilian, let's start with the US. Can you tell us what's at stake and how is the US dealing with the impact from this deteriorating relations with China and the COVID-19 pandemic? Thank you, Bernie. Well, the questions are quite interlinked uh, quite closely and uh, let's unpack a little. To your first question, what is at stake? I would say it's probably not an understatement that uh, the global peace and security that we have taken for granted for the last two decades or so, if not longer, uh, that is what is at stake. The whole ecosystem of global cooperation, uh, your multinational institutions, IMF, WTO, under the so-called Pax Americana, uh, that has become unraveled. Within that vein, obviously, the bilateral rivalry between US and China, uh, which are able to command a lion's share of the global economy between them. It's also top one, top two export destination for many countries here in Asia. That has turned quite bitter. So on top of that, you juxtapose that with the US domestic situation, uh, be it the uptick in virus cases once again, uh, the perceived mishandling of the situation by Trump administration, and of course, uh, we have the economic slowdown. On top of that, we have the election happening uh, in November, uh, which the incumbent Trump uh, might well be losing grounds against the challenger Biden. So we have a very interesting year that might get even more interesting in the second half. So on the US-China relationship in particular, I think Tommy will touch more on that later on as well. But from the US perspective, obviously the worse things get for Trump on the domestic front, uh, the more he'll be tempted to drum up support by waving the, the flag, the nationalistic flag. Uh, there's been a tried and tested method uh, as old as time, I would say, for politicians anywhere. So if the virus resurgence gets worse, unfortunately, my fear is that he'll be even more afraid of losing uh, the November election. So he'll be more tempted to ratchet things up further uh, with China. So you've seen the escalation, as you know, with Houston and then Chengdu, tit for tat closure. So I think uh, the, the symptoms are plenty, but fundamentally it's really uh, the idea that China is challenging uh, the US as uh, the sole superpower in the world. Sounds like non-stop hits this 2020. Tommy, maybe you can also let us know, you know, what's going on with China? How has China been impacted? And how has the pandemic in China been playing out recently? Uh, yes, hi, Bernie. I think uh, both topics are very important uh, topic for China, whether in terms of the pandemic development, as well as in terms of the US-China relationship. I think that's going to really shape the future uh, outlook of the Chinese economy. So let me start with the bad news first, which is the free fall of the US-China relationship. As you just now you mentioned, uh, the closure of the consular in, in both uh, countries. I think uh, this one to me is a big deal. Um, whether it's a game changer or not, we need to see. Uh, I mean, frankly speaking, for the past two years, we have enough uh, negative headline news about the US-China relationship. We start from the trade war, then we have technology war, all the power issues. Then uh, recently we have the Hong Kong situation, right? I mean, I would say most of the thing has been kind of still manageable. That's why the market has been fairly muted in terms of the reaction until last week, the, uh, the closure of the consulates. I think this one to me potentially could be the one of the game changes because that shows uh, the hardliners within the Trump administration 
has taken charge at the moment. So if we want to see what's going on between the China and the US, so we might think from the two perspectives. One is the, what's the uh, near-term impact. The other one is more, what's the medium-term impact. In terms of the near-term near impact, we know we are like about three months away from the US election. I, I guess uh, this three months could be the most dangerous three months, could be the most critical three months for most of us to really watch very carefully. I think just now, I think uh, William mentioned a very good point. So we have been taking uh, the global peace for granted for many years, but I think now we need to start to think something we call the unthinkable, right? I think if you can recall, uh, back in May, uh, in early May actually, uh, there was one leaked uh, Republican memo about the campaign, right? So how they want to do the campaign. So I think one of the message from this uh, uh, memo is that don't defend Trump, attack China, right? That seems like the key guiding principle uh, for the next three months leading towards the uh, November election. So we're going, going to see more and more clashes between the two uh, economies. So I think that's why I think to me, uh, one of the unthinkable I'm currently thinking is, are we going to see the possibility of the diplomatic break? I think that's the one I cannot totally rule out. So we need to uh, pay more attention for the next three months. That's more like a near-term impact. So in terms of the medium-term impact, so how about the post-election, right? Let's say if Biden um, is going to win the election, so is that better for China or not? So I'm not particularly quite sure at the moment because I think what we are seeing is that we, are, we have already seen you know, confronting China. Confronting China has been the like a long-term uh, bipartisan kind of the uh, consensus for the U.S. Congress. So we're going to see uh, more, more measures uh, or more laws being announced by the U.S. side to to challenge China, right? So I think uh, to me, it seems like a kind of the new normal we are going to see. So that's why I think in terms of the US-China relationship in the long, longer run, I think it will be still quite challenging. That's why in my opinion is that uh, we should still stay engaged, stay invested in China, but we need to be very sensitive to all the potential headline news. So uh, in terms of the pandemic, I think so far so good. So uh, you look at the, the, the Chinese economy, I think, uh, China does enjoy what we call the first in, first out kind of the benefit. So the economy has been doing uh, pretty much well. And if you look at the, the uh, within the country, the travel, for example, the airline, the traffic flow, I mean, for example, so we have kind of the return to 80% of the pre-COVID-19 level. So that's a quite a, a decent number in my opinion. That's why I think pandemic uh, right now is still not a concern. I would say if we really want to need to be more uh, careful about the headline news, I guess the U.S.-China relationship will be the dominant headlines going forward. Okay, thanks. So, I mean, it sounds like a lot of things uh, going on, but, you know, security and trade aside, really, how else is, uh, you know, all this going to impact global markets, especially for investors? That's right, Bernie. Before, maybe before we go into the market specific, I think the jive on uh, what Tommy mentioned, I think sure. one thing that we need to keep uh, note of, whoever wins the White House uh, this November, I think things might not change all that much. I think one one thing that concerns me is this, the antipathy towards China is probably the only thing that both Democrats and Republicans can agree on. It's a fascinating for me to talk to American friends, old schoolmates of mine of different political persuasions. They can agree, disagree on everything under the sky. But what they both agree on, both sides agree on, is really China's rise must be checked, now or never. So it tells me that whoever wins the White House come November, while well, the policy making style, the delivery might change, the underlying tension 
uh, will not. As they say, the train has left the station on this one. Um, but on the global markets front, so far, but for better or worse, I think the market has largely been uh, ignoring uh, the underlying tensions between the countries. Obviously, as you mentioned at the start of the show, um, gold price has indeed picked up. Among other things, I think it's picking up a bit of geopolitical tension risk as a, as a hedge. But by and large, I think um, equity markets in particular, although some days we do see some pullback here and there, especially for uh, specific sensitive counters, but overall the market sentiment has really been unaffected. Uh, so it seems to be still very much supported by the idea that there's a central bank backstop, the balance sheet support by central bank, especially the Fed, that should be enough to keep us going. So at one level, obviously that's a good thing. Uh, we view it from the potential, however, that the market might become too complacent. Obviously that's not a very good thing, since it set things up for potential uh, sudden uh, knee-jerk reaction. You might have a realization that um, whatever fundamental support that's been given to the global markets, global economy, uh, the peace and security that we talked about, uh, the global trade flows that have been happening despite what, what was going on over the last few years. Uh, if market suddenly wakes up one day and realize that, hey, things are not going to be the same again uh, because now there's a clear and present danger that US-China rivalry might boil over so much so that uh, global trade flows that we take for granted for so long can become impeded and impeded very quickly, then it's not going to be a nice day. I think we're still hopeful. Obviously, that's not going to be the case, but the probability is no longer uh, as low as before. Thanks. And Tommy, I mean, is, uh, are the Asian markets going to have a nice day, as William said? So I think uh, it's tricky because uh, for Asian market, we do take the cue from the US, right? So I think right now, a lot of people are asking, you know, what if uh, Trump uh, lose the election, right? So if we are going to have Biden as president, has market pricing the potential corporate tax hike? Uh, in the US, right? So I think that's the question a lot of people are asking. But of course, that's more like the three to four months down the road kind of the story. Uh, in the near term, I think the Asian market in general are still uh, kind of the enjoy the cyclical recovery story, uh, which actually, uh, you know, uh, created by, by the Chinese recovery story. So we do have, just now we talk about the first thing first out in China, which actually generate kind of the excitement about this uh, cyclical recovery story. I think uh, recently we also uh, saw the data, the industry profit numbers in China has jumped quite significantly in June. So that again uh, may, 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 may well support the commodity demand from China. So for those commodity related companies in Asia, I think they may potentially benefit from China's uh, restocking activity again. So I think, but of course, when we look at uh, Asia as a whole, we also look at the, like North Asia versus South Asia. I think uh, in, in the end, I think uh, what the countries that can potentially benefit more from the, this cyclical recovery story could be those companies with a decent and uh, a huge current account surplus. But for those uh, Asian economies with uh, like a current account deficit, they may still feel kind of the challenging environment. But in general, I think Asia as a whole, uh, we should still see uh, kind of the positive support in the near term uh, in terms of this uh, cyclical recovery story. Yeah. Mm. Okay, uh, back to you, Weilian. How do you think the U.S. has dealt with the second wave of infections in this COVID-19 pandemic? I think not good. Uh, it's probably uh, two words I'll use to describe it. Uh, given that, of course, we're talking about the world's most powerful, uh, most endowed, best endowed country. Arguably, it was given some late time as well to prepare. So the way it first popped up back in uh, late 
played much, I think was not good. The way cases popped up again in recent weeks, obviously they can seem to be worse. Uh, there are a few things we have to keep in mind when we so-called judge how, how they respond. Obviously, unlike countries in Asia, we have muscle memory, if you will, of a SARS crisis, MERS crisis. Uh, US really has not seen a pandemic of this skill in a very long time. So naturally, the level of preparedness at the official side, uh, the level of awareness, even at the societal side, uh, those two things will be lower. Uh, also, the response quite a bit befuddled by the mishmash of authorities as well, given that as much as federal government holds some power, it's the nature of American democratic setup that state governments uh, have some say also even municipal level governments. So you layer that on top of the bipartisanship uh, and also you know, ongoing, I would say, structural mistrust against experts in general. In some quarters, it was just not going to be a good outcome for the U.S. So um, that's one thing. On the brighter side of things, I must add that things have not looked have looked to be on a relatively improving side. Uh, for one, Trump has started to wear masks. <laughs> we might laugh at something that's apparently so simple and literally superficial uh, from the vantage point half a world away, uh, but it does mark a change at the top that should hopefully turn the tide around uh, at the you know a supporter level. Also, yeah. let's not forget that. U.S. weakness may also be its strength. The fact that it's such a big country, uh, very diverse uh, in terms of political structure, in terms of societal making, and also decision-making process. I say that, uh, you know, although you see a lot of states, they're obviously hotspots, Texas, Florida, what have you, struggling to get handled things. We, are all, we might actually forget that a lot of others that have learned the lesson, especially the New York area, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state area, and also whether up north in New England, center around Massachusetts, those areas were hit quite badly at the initial phase of the coronavirus pandemic, but they've gotten better handle of things, including, you know, again, shutting the so-called state borders to some extent uh, fairly quickly. So we have pockets of resilience, despite the fact that, of course, at the very top, at the broad level, uh, US can could have uh, done a lot better. I think sometimes I'm reminded of what Winston Churchill said, many, many decades ago, obviously in different settings about US, you can always trust the Americans to do the right thing once they've exhausted all other possibilities. I think in this case, it might well be the be what's going on. Yeah, and uh, how about Tommy, in, in China, you know, I think they've uh, imposed fresh lockdowns in some cities. Um, how has China been dealing with the second wave of infections? Right, I think so far, the, they are doing quite okay, I would say. Uh, just now, I think, uh, uh, we didn't talk about the, the U.S. situation. I think he, he used the word not good, right? I mean, for China, I think we can break down to two parts. I mean, the first part, not so good, uh, especially in the initial stage of the outbreak, like January and February. Uh, there was quite a lot of like, uh, unhappiness, I think, disappointments about how the government handled the situation. But uh, moving on to like a March onwards, actually, we see the situation is getting much, much better. I think uh, the government in China also learned the lessons from the mistakes they made uh, in, in January. So now I think uh, if we look at the, the strategy has been used by the government, how to how to contain the pandemic, I think I would say in summarize about the two two main, main strategy. The first main strategy is basically to for the mass testing, right? So the mass testing is the, the key uh, to break the, the chain of the transmission. I mean, the second strategy is a speed. Speed is very important to test earlier, identify earlier, treat earlier. That's really the recipe uh, to protect uh, the, 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 the people, right? Especially the vulnerable group of people. So um, maybe I can just share one example with you about you know what happened recently. So as we know, we have the second wave uh, in Hong Kong as well, but we know sometimes we have, we have kind of people travel between Hong Kong and the Shenzhen, which is the, like, uh, the, the neighboring cities. So I think on the 26th of July, the Hong Kong government uh, report one confirmed case. So this confirmed case happened to be a truck driver 
So who drive, uh, who drive the truck you know, between like uh, Hong Kong and Shenzhen. So uh, apparently he, he also went back to his uh, apartment in Shenzhen uh, for a short stay. Then uh, in the afternoon of the 26th, I think the government in Hong Kong reported the case. So by midnight of the 26th, actually the Shenzhen government has already test all the people uh, li living in this particular condo, more than uh, 2,300 people, right? So they collect all the samples. By the, by the next morning, um, before 7.30, all the results has been out. So but luckily, everybody was ne negative, so which is a kind of a relief. But you look at the, the case, you know, Hong Kong government uh, report the case uh, in the afternoon, but within next 12 to 18 hours, all the results has been out for all the residents uh, who living together with him in the same condo, right? So I think that's basically the speed. I think right now the Chinese government is uh, trying to, you know, use kind of things to to, to, to contain the, the pandemic. I think this strategy so far worked quite well. So if you look at the Beijing's case, so we had the first case around the middle of June, but by early July, so we have no more new case in, in, in Beijing. So I think uh, Beijing has been able to contain the viral outbreak within women. So I think that's a good achievement as well. And also you look at the fatality, even though we have the second wave in Beijing, uh, in, in Ulumbuchi, which is the west, uh, northwest part of China, and also recently in Dalian, but so far we had a zero death, right? So it's a kind of a zero, zero percent fatality rate for the second wave. So this is quite an amazing number in my, in my opinion. That's why I think uh, so far so good, but again, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very smart virus, so we cannot lower our guards uh, down, right? So I think otherwise we're going to see the second wave, third wave, or even fourth wave. That's why I think we still need to be very, uh, you know, pay attention to be very uh, vegetarian at the current environment. But at least it seems like uh, um, what happened in China right now uh, has already restored the public confidence in government's capability to handle the virus. I think this to me is very important. In the end, whether your, 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 your people trust the government, I think it's always the most important things to, to, to be able to handle the, 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 the virus. Just now I shared that one number, which reached the, uh, the air traffic flow, right? So now it's returned to 80% of the pre-pandemic level. So I think this is kind of the confidence vote uh, to government's capability to handle the virus, which I think is good and also important uh, for the economic growth in future. Yep. And then, you know, speaking of the speed of, of containment, what about the speed to getting a vaccine? You know, in Singapore, it has been reported that a vaccine may only be uh, ready in, at the end of 2021. You know, is there any hope of a vaccine, you know, from either of the superpowers? Wilhelm, maybe we start with you? I think Singapore always tried to um, set the expectation low to surprise and upset. So hopefully we'll see vaccine before that. That's a good news. But obviously, uh, Tommy is an expert on the on the vaccine development. I'll leave him to talk more about it. But essentially, I think it, when it, if it comes down to a geopolitical choice, um, then it becomes tricky. Uh, hopefully, none of the countries in the world, including where we are now in Singapore, will be forced to choose. Say, uh, we give you vaccines only if you say, you know, befriend me and don't friend the other guy, kind of like kindergarten, hopefully don't get to that stage. Uh, but but there is a there's obviously a probability of that happening again if the US-China relationship overall deteriorates uh, further. Uh, but definitely I think also let's not forget that uh, apart from US and China, there, there are obviously a lot of other countries uh, that are also busy uh, developing vaccine. 
so I think it, it would be a good thing if we have more vaccines for more countries rather than you know one kind of vaccine for one country. I think Tommy probably touched on the, the need for variety of vaccines just because uh, we might well be dealing with different strains of, of this, uh, like what he said, smart virus. Okay. Yes, and Tommy, how about China? Any vaccine from China? Okay, I mean, first of all, just let me uh, share one number, right? Just uh, anyone can make a guess, you know. Uh, how many years, you know, for us human beings uh, to develop the vaccine for Ebola virus? I mean, you can, I mean, anybody can make a guess, but I can tell you the numbers. Uh, you, you will be shocked. Uh, it's 44 years, right? Since we identified, we found out the Ebola virus, it took us about 44 years. So that's basically tell you how long uh, we need to spend the time, you know, to develop the vaccine. So, but can we wait 44 years for the COVID-19? I guess we know, right? Nobody can wait for 44 years for that. So uh, that's a challenging part. I, I don't want to be too optimistic about this vaccine development because we know the vaccine development is very time consuming, costly, with higher failure rates. That's the reality we need to take note, right? That's why I think, to me, um, the message from the Singapore government, to me, is a fairly prudent and a fairly uh, realistic target, in my opinion. We, we do have a lot of challenge ahead. So, but of course, um, what makes the current pandemic different from past pandemic, so is the amount of the resources has been deployed is unprecedented, right? So we have the best resources globally, People are just pouring all the monies. So we have the money from the private sectors. We have the money from the public sectors. So those are going to make a difference. That's why I think I, I do have the hope uh, for those uh, vaccine stories. But again, we need to be uh, cautious, right? I think so far, uh, we have a lot of positive news about the vaccine. So sometimes, you know, for us, we, we try to explain, you know, why the market up, why market down, right? Sometimes if we cannot find a good, good reason to explain why today the market up, we will say uh, because of the positive news from the vaccine, right? But sometimes, uh, do you think it could be too good to be true, right? I mean, how come all the vaccines we are developing are all come out of the positive news, right? Is that too good to be true? I'm not quite sure. But we need, still, again, we need to, to see more, 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 more results from those uh, uh, vaccine developments, in my opinion. Uh, so far, I think uh, most of the uh, human trial is all like uh, phase one, phase two. I mean, phase one and phase two will tell you whether this vaccine can generate the immunity or whether this vaccine is tolerable or not. I think so far, I think most of our vaccines are able to uh, generate kind of the uh, immunity. But I think what's important is the phase three, which some of the vaccine has just entered the phase three, right? I think the phase three is important because that will really tell us whether this vaccine can help us to, to prevent from the being infected by the COVID-19. So that's a very important critical phase. But so far, we don't have any data, any uh, proof to, to show that this vaccine can, can prevent people from being infected. So that's why we need to pay a little bit patient to wait for more time to see the final results. But again, as, as mentioned by, by, by William, I think uh, we have the front runners from US, from China. We also have some firm runners from other countries, such as the UK. I think currently the UK one is one of the leading uh, candidates, which may potentially uh, be deployed by end of the year or maybe by early next year. I mean, hopefully we can get more positive news from the phase three. So we need to be a little bit more patient to wait for the phase three results before we can have a better answer. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and while we are being patient to wait for the vaccine to come about, maybe just a final question for the both of you. Uh, Wayland, what is the U.S. doing in the meantime to lift their domestic economy? 
I think in the meantime, ever since um, the coronavirus pandemic hit them uh, quite badly in mid-March, I think uh, they've been firing up, I would say, on pretty much all engines, physical and monetary. And on the monetary side first, I think obviously Fed has been quite instrumental in responding to the crisis very early on. I remember in those dark days, uh, they cut rate in an unprecedented way in terms of both magnitude and also speed. Uh, they brought down the policy rate, the Fed funds rate, effectively all the way to zero matter of weeks um, in late March. So alongside that, it's also been increasing uh, the QE measure, quantitative easing measure, ballooning the balance sheet. Uh, early this year, we had 4.3 or so trillion dollars on the balance sheet. Uh, they were supposed to reduce it further, but obviously things change and change quite rapidly, and then they have to balloon it to well over seven billion, uh, seven trillion, and likely to come up further as well. So, in terms of lending programs, they're obviously centering on not just the Wall Street lending, uh, lending to the banks and financial institutions, but also lending to the mom and pop shop uh, SMEs and also households directly. Uh, I think most importantly, from our perspective here, emerging markets in Asia. Fed has been instrumental. I think it's uh, not just in boosting domestic economy, but also been quietly saving, I would say, the global financial markets. I think unsung heroes sounds like strong words, but without their stop lines, without the US dollar report facilities, I think US dollar shortage would have been so dire that I don't think we would have been uh, seeing the kind of rapid stabilization of global financial markets that we've seen in the last few months. Obviously, now we're dealing with the idea that US dollar is weakening, etc. Uh, et so on the flip side of things. So, it's kind of like a, a measure of their success in a way. On the, on the other side, the other engine obviously on the fiscal side, I would say it's been quite forthright and quite strong uh, so far, especially again during the depths of the crisis. Uh, call it what you may, bipartisanship, cooperation it, it comes to the fore, the sense of crisis rescuing uh, the U.S. economy, but they did come through. Uh, I mean, a few stimulus packages, including you know paychecks worth uh, 1,200 bucks to households to tide them over through tough times. Also, the supplemental unemployment benefits worth 600 bucks a week. Uh, I think so much so that there are people complaining that hey, uh, you know, uh, you, you guys give up so much money, people might not want to go back to work because they earn more money from the government not working than going to to the shops to work. I think there's some truth in that, but the flip side of that is that some of these measures um, slated slated to end, and including the 600 bucks a week uh, unemployment benefits are ending by end of July. Uh, there are some talks now of extending it uh, in some measure. Uh, the, the Republican Party had their own version and the Democrat Party has their own version. And as usual, I think unless you, uh, their backs are against the wall, uh, don't expect any quick action from them. Uh, so we might well see some, some, some sort of fiscal cliff coming, but hopefully it won't be too long. And hopefully uh, they get resolved what kind of new fiscal stimulus measures that can come in, come in place before they go on a one-month-long recess starting, I believe, from August 10 or so. Uh, so those are the things to look out for from the U.S. Okay. And Tommy, um, final question. So what about China? What is China doing to uplift its uh, domestic economy? Okay, thank you. So let me share three points for the final question. I mean, the first point is uh, in terms of the stimulus, I think China also relied on the uh, both the monetary and the fiscal stimulus to support the economy. But I think uh, as compared to the countries like US or Germany, Japan and Singapore, I think China is not as generous as those countries because constrained from the government firepower, also constrained from the property market, etc. Uh, but, but again, I think they're still trying to do something. Uh, but interestingly, I think what support uh, the Chinese economy uh, in the second quarter in particular 
is actually the external demand. That it's a bit uh, counterintuitive, but that's basically what happened right now in China. So um, partially because of the demand for the medical uh, equipment, uh, partially because of the global demand for the electronic product as well, because most of people are working from home. So that actually become one of the supporting factors to the recovery of the Chinese economy in the second quarter. But we know the external demand was, it may, might not be sustainable. In particular, in particular, against the backdrop of the uh, tension between the U.S. and the China, as well as the rising uh, global protectionism, right? That's why I think that's actually lead to my second point: is what's important going forward is the domestic demand. So I think, uh, given this uh, rising tension between the U.S. and the China, in fact, China has increasingly uh, more focus on the internal outreach. So one of the game changer, which was also happened last week, is uh, uh, President Xi Jinping's meeting with the business owners from the different sectors, uh, including the state-owned, private-owned, or even like a foreign-owned kind of the sectors. So I think she uh, uh, did give the assurance to those companies, you know, China will do whatever they can to support all the market entities, including the private-owned economy. That's a very important assurance, in my opinion. So uh, Xi Jinping did the same thing uh, back in uh, November 2018, when we first had the US-China trade war. I think uh, President Xi actually assure the company, uh, China will do whatever they can to support those companies. Actually, that helped to stabilize the job market in 2019. That also helped to you know, support the economy uh, to recover in the 2019 story. So I think we saw this uh, episode again. So hopefully that's going to provide kind of the stabilization factors uh, to the job stabilization uh, in the coming months and, and the quarters. So my last point is also, even though we have this tension between the US and the China, but again, opening, mentality is still very important for China. You cannot uh, you know, uh, scale back your opening or your reform just because of the tension, right? I think, in fact, you should do more in terms of the opening, in terms of reform. I think that seems like a tone right now in China. China will try to do more uh, to further open to the foreign investors. So it could be the worst timing to, to invest in China, but it could be also the best timing to invest in China. Depends on how you look at it, depends on how you position it. I think there's a lot of opportunities China is going to open uh, to the foreign investors. So that could be a lot of exciting excitement uh, ahead uh, in, the, in the coming years. Okay, so thank you so much, William and, and Tommy. Thanks for all your insights on the two big superpowers of the world, the US and China. Till next time, you can also find us on Telegram and Spotify. Thank you for joining us on OCBC Insights. This has been a podcast from OCBC Bank. Follow us on Spotify for more episodes like the one you've just heard.